Welcome back, everyone. This is Austin Roberts. Here at the Ecosiv Podcast, we engage leading thinkers in conversations about the kinds of transformations required to create a more sustainable, peaceful, and just world. In this episode, we are sharing a podcast interview from the Conservation Careers Podcast, where Nick Askew, founder and director of Conservation Careers, and Anna Hickson, who works with Ecosiv as an associate director, talk about the biggest challenges facing us as a global society how to rebuild and transform economic systems in favor of human and ecological well-being, and offer advice for aspiring conservationists on how to get the ideal conservation job. Conservation Careers is the number one advice center for conservationists, helping 700,000 conservationists in 178 countries across the globe. They offer a conservation job board, career advice, training, and courses to help conservationists achieve career success. And now... Here's Anna and Nick. Hi, everyone. It's Nick here from Conservation Careers, and welcome to the podcast. Now, how can we tackle some of the biggest challenges facing us as a global society for the betterment of people and wildlife? Can we really rebuild and transform economic systems in favour of human and ecological well-being? And what does the future look like for protected areas for wildlife? This forms part of the energetic discussion with today's guest, Anna Hickson. Now, Anna is the Associate Director for Projects and Foundation Relations at the Institute of Ecological Civilization, or ECOCIV for short. Anna talks us through the work of ECOCIV and what it's like to do her role day to day. And having worked previously in HR, we also discuss her top tips for applications, along with her advice for aspiring conservation starters and switchers on how to get going in the sector. It's an exciting, it's a wide-ranging, energetic, and really informative discussion. Enjoy. So... My name is Anna Hickson, um, and I am the Associate Director for Projects and Foundations Relations at the Institute for Ecological Civilization, ECOCIV for short, and I'll probably refer to it as ECOCIV since the other title is a bit of a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Institute for Ecological Civilization, which I can see where you say ECOCIV. It's a lot quicker and a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, My first question then is is an easy, obvious one. Like what what or who is ECOCIV? Like, you know, what, yeah. Can you describe it to us for those that don't know much Mm -hmm. about it? And yeah, what does it seek to achieve? Yeah, it's really an emerging startup nonprofit in many ways. Ecosiv's mission is to promote the long-term, long-term solutions for well-being of, for people and the planet. So really taking a holistic look at our, our relationships with the natural environment, our economic systems, and how we operate as a civilization and looking for pathways forward that really tie in in kind of an ecosystem approach to just our day-to-day lives that we've veered away from as with the development of modern day society. So within that, what we do is partnership is a huge piece of our work. We really partner, if I back up a little bit, we're completely remote, um, which is really interesting if you think about <laughs> a conservation or a ecological group (laughs) we are completely there's no head office there's no yeah there's no head office we (laughs) our location is san diego but we are all over the globe in truth and so 
we span across the U.S., but we also have individuals who have been working, you know, part-time in Bosnia who are Bosnian citizens. We have individuals in Canada mm. um, and then in South Africa as well. So we are kind of all over and we work collaboratively, you know, using the technology that we have. So even prior to COVID, it was a, you know, it was a space that we were trying to begin operations in. And COVID kind of then opened up more doors with newer technology and people really getting getting on board with this remote workspace. Yeah. And so we should probably our, say, by the way, you're in Iceland right now. You just showed yes. me like at, at the view out your window of yeah. the mountains and the snow. This is sort of midsummer almost. Yeah, Amazing. Mid-summer so you really Iceland. can be based anywhere and it works. Yeah. And it's really, I mean, it's a beautiful thing. It's a it's a funny thing to think about if you get in into the depths of really contemplating what you're doing in space and time and sitting at a computer trying yeah. to work on ecological issues, but yeah. it is, it's a very cool space to be operating in. Yeah. Um, and within our work, we, our whole approach is through partnership. And so we're big on facilitating, convening, connecting, and researching ways forward solutions mm-hmm. for long-term sustainability is really kind of our MO. And we've partnered with a few different organizations over the years. And currently our work is focused in the water space. It's then the biggest, um, biggest push because of our partnership with a nonprofit in South Africa. They are called Saber Schools, SOS for short. Mm-hmm. And they do a lot of on the ground work for securing safe, clean water for schools and also informal settlements um, across South Africa. Mm-hmm. And we partnered with them right before day zero and held a large conference that looked at, okay, what do we, what do we need to do? We're, we're running out of time. Um, and how do we move forward? And so that kind of spurred this partnership between these two groups of, okay, we have connections, you know, across the States to various academic institutions, global resources and knowledge. And this group is doing wonderful work on the ground, but doesn't necessarily have capacity to reach out to those global resources all the time. So where can we, where do we fit in? Where can we be the best support? And so we worked with them to identify a pathway forward, which was creating this um, online platform called the, it's called the W12 plus blueprint, which was one of my main projects. And it opens up the doors of, you know, best practices and solutions for urban water security solutions and challenges. So trying to create a space where these global resources and knowledge can be easily shared in common language and in low resource settings and on this online platform. And so by supporting kind of local leaders who are doing things and identifying, okay, this is one way forward. We have worked with them to see that this was something that was needed. And then with that, then we tried to connect connect other leaders to this platform or other groups to this platform. And so within that, we've then branched out. So our main partner for our water program is this SOS um, in South Africa. And we, within that, have created W12 Plus, um, which is Ecosiv's water program. Mm -hmm. And we're now working across South Sudan and in Egypt. Um, with kind of that same method of we're sub- identifying local leaders that we've found through partnership with other organizations and have just been informed these individuals are doing wonderful work. Mm-hmm. And we're like, okay, let's chat to them, 
see, you know, what do they need? Where, where do they want to go to really envision a long-term sustainable future? What does that look like and how can we support them getting there? Right. And then connecting those leaders with, again, global resources and knowledge. And we do that through roundtable workshops, bringing in government um, from, you know, national government, local government, as well as external institutions, um, researchers, just to kind of talk about the topics that are right in front of them and identify potential projects and movement forward. So, for example, in South Sudan, we have been a partner with Water for South Sudan, an absolutely wonderful organization. And their background has been um, building wells across South Sudan for immediate water access. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was started by Salva Dut, who is a lost boy in South Sudan and had moved to the States and decided to go back um, to South Sudan to do a lot of work. And there's a book about him, um, A Long Walk to Water, which I would re- recommend reading. And they, you know, were interested in doing more in terms of long-term security, but, you know, there's an immediate need for access to water, which mm-hmm. 100% and there need to be individuals doing that. So we um, partnered with them to do research on what what is the water situation in South Sudan. So compiling all of the scientific research of, you know, who's who's been studying, you know, the groundwater, the surface water, you know, what precipitation is looking like, what climate change is going to be doing to the region, getting all of that information, compiling it and, you know, working with them to then identify um, potential stakeholders who would be interested in mm. moving this conversation forward okay great so that's great sort of introduction and then kind of narrowing in on like water as well which seems to be where Mm -hmm. you're coming from as an organization so you you look at some of the big picture sustainability issues that are facing the world water security being a key one that you've identified yeah you then find some people that are doing some great work that need support you connect them to others who can help them from elsewhere Mm -hmm. they so Mm -hmm. you're like a connection organization yeah and then and then you convene bringing people together build a successful project and then replicate that elsewhere sort of sharing lessons and creating sort of wider programs of work around it Mm -hmm. i hope i'm paraphrasing that right how does this sort of fit in then to sort of wildlife conservation and sort of ecosystem work as well i mean are there ambitions and and programs around that yeah definitely so we have A few emerging spaces, um, conservation economies being one. So working with organizations that are trying to move away from the stronghold of fortress conservation, which has been, you know, known across the globe of just removing people from place and keeping a wild space as a wild space when we're disregarding indigenous communities who had lived there and all of the um, work and stewardship that has gone along with, you know, these former um, inhabitants and then trying to reintroduce those individuals back into the space of monitoring, you know, wildlife, as well as creating an economic system around that, that is a value add, not only for, you know, biodiversity conservation, but for livelihoods of these groups. Bring that to life for me a little bit more. I think I'm following Mm -hmm. you. So fortress conservation, something where traditionally you'd go in and say, right, this area is going to be protected now, yeah. almost almost yeah. ring-fenced, but maybe not literally, in some cases yeah. maybe. At that point, local communities who've lived there for however long may even be removed out of that system. Yeah. Their rights mm-hmm. have been overlooked in yeah. place for just wildlife. And now you're looking to bring people back in to help conserve 
that land, but also to give them livelihoods back and link to some sort of economies. Do you have any examples of that working on the ground? Yeah, we're not. So we, this is a very emerging space where we're not yeah. directly on, on the ground. Well, ecosystem as a whole is never directly on the ground, but we mm-hmm. right problems, now yeah. are about to hold our workshop actually on um, conservation economies in what, a, I guess, yeah, early, early this next month um, in early June. And so <clears throat> where we're gathering stakeholders who are operating in the conservation space and who are looking to both groups that are led by indigenous communities. We have quite a, we have a lot of contacts within, with on, um, within the African continent. And so there are a lot of groups there who are, um, you know, there's a group within the Maasai community who they're going through training to then train rangers so that then those in the Maasai community can be active members in like, park services and all of that sort of stuff. But there's other ways to go about it as well. Um, And so we'll be holding this round table. I think it's a two day round table with about 90 minutes each kind of discussing, you know, what does this actually look like if we're moving forward towards a new conservation model uh, rather than exclusion? How is it that we as human populations and also indigenous population who, who have managed these lands for centuries without us how how can we bring that back into modern day society where there's you know evaluation for economies as well as yeah general livelihoods and just sustainability of our natural spaces yeah. um so it's really exciting it's it's going to be very interesting to see you know having conversations with those in the conservation space that do actively do things you know thinking of like national parks and kind of how in the U.S. and the exclusion model that's there, yeah, what would yeah. what how would those look different if we had incorporated, you know, the rich traditional ecological knowledge that we have, um, and what those spaces would be like today? And yeah, yeah. I guess it's sort of classic community based conservation, which is a rapidly much, evolving field. Yeah. Field, yeah, yeah, and trying to unlock livelihoods and income streams for local people that also. Yeah also ideally protect wildlife too at the same time and ecotourism mm-hmm. and game ranges and wardens are a really obvious route that that can work really well um yeah. but there must be others other exactly. that can be unlocked and understanding what they might be and that's the tricky part too and i think um you know i've lived in a few places where tourism has been you know the main economic stronghold but it's so we can see with COVID, it's so volatile oh, it's so, yeah it's um there need to be other options. And so identifying those for spaces, especially where tourism isn't, you know, isn't a high priority and yeah. there those negative, negative impacts of tourism too, of just the flood, you know, if the floodgates open and then yeah. people are just swarming an area, for instance, here in Iceland, you know, we, it's a population of 380,000 right now. And in the summer it goes up to 2 million and <laughs> you know that's a huge impact on the landscape that's a huge impact on the wildlife it's yeah it's it's crazy so thinking about that in these space in other spaces across the globe how how can we how can we do it differently um so it'll be exciting to see i don't have the answers right now so it'll be exciting to see where you know community-based conservation we went for conservation economies because trying to identify a name that really ties everything, um, everything together in that space. It, it's been, it's been difficult, but there has been some, um, 
individuals who have enjoyed kind of looking at a conservation economies as the way forward, but will that really be just community-based conservation? There was wildlife economies as well um, as a focus. So trying to find a common term that will be universal globally too, even yeah. to discuss <laughs> to discuss these topics is yeah. will be part of the conversation. And I think it even shows like the way you're talking, this is evolving. You're trying to figure yeah, yeah. this out. This isn't like a set model that's worked for decades mm-hmm. that we're just rolling out. It's mm-hmm. kind of an evolving field and we're trying to figure this stuff out. And even the term hasn't sort of settled down yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you work with economists as well? Are they sort of part of the kind of wider network? Because their skill set is quite important in this arena. Very much so. Um, within this space, I do believe that they'll be a part of that, you know, stakeholder roundtable to kind of see if we're moving projects forward, which will be definitely will be key pieces um, of projects. And then within conservation economies, well, not within, but I guess parallel to, um, we also work in the well-being economy space. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a group, the Wellbeing Economy Alliance. They're based out of the UK and we've partnered Mm -hmm. with them looking at um, California because California is, I think the fifth, California as a state is like the fifth largest economy or something globally. So it's a big, (laughs) so, you know, looking at what does, well-being for people on planet look like in the economic space so looking at california as a case study of policy initiatives that are needed to kind of move along that trajectory so within that project we have connection to economists that you know hopefully we can connect over to this conservation space and Mm. um utilize their knowledge expertise and further connections so that's kind of one of the biggest things of our organization we have these little different projects going on but ideally we're utilizing our own resources and connecting them all, creating this holistic picture of a way forward towards Whoa. an ecological civilization. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> Easy, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, before we talk about your role, which I really want to get into, like mm-hmm. you, how big is your organization? Like how many staff do you have roughly and what the different skill sets across them? Just briefly. Yeah. Yeah. We have, it's, it's a pretty small, I guess, you know, some people say it's large, but I, I view it to be very small. Um, we have about 18 staff members, but most of which are part-time. Um, small, I think yeah. we have about a handful that are full-time right now. And then we have a group of external consultants that yeah. we utilize for different projects that are experts in their in their field. And it's largely sort of grant funding focused. And, and how old are you? Yeah. yeah. Not, not yeah. you, but the organization. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, grant, yeah, so grant funding focus as well as major donors. And um, yeah, look at we have done some fee for service work just in terms of research capacity and all that sort of stuff with yeah. projects that align with our work that can because we're it was established in 2015. Um, so still relatively, you know, new growing and it took on its current form of ecosiv probably in 2018 or so so it is yeah. really kind of rapidly startup yeah. <laughs> non-profit vibes <laughs> yeah absolutely which is only four years ago as we're chatting so yeah yeah, yeah. quite fresh still growing yeah. exciting so. right well let's talk about your work then and mm-hmm. your, your particular job if i've got this right i've got it written down here associate director <laughs> projects and foundations relations have i got that right yes <laughs> bingo what does that mean tell us what does you do um, I do a little bit of everything. I was yeah. so yeah, I was brought on same, you know, very much 
the nonprofit space of wearing multiple hats, particularly in a very early, um, early developing nonprofit. But I was brought on initially just as a researcher for the water project. And I was researching, doing case studies on what are, you know, what are some solutions out there in the water space? I then quickly started to kind of make my, make my way up um, with just previous other skill sets um yeah. can i just hit pause on you there because yeah. i looked at linkedin before we chatted and say you worked <laughs> up quickly so in two years two months according to linkedin <laughs> research assistant consultant research and yeah. development assistant research and development analyst research and development associate and now associate director of projects that's yeah. within two years yeah <laughs> five roles so it's been a lot of change and a lot yeah. of yeah. work and promotion within that space yeah yeah very 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 much so um yeah, I mean, it's funny to think about that. That was really just for two years. Mm. Um, yeah, and it because it seems so. It seems longer in many ways. It seems shorter in other ways. That since COVID, since April twenty twenty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Since the onset, that's been that's mm. been my tenure so far. Yeah, and we yeah. So I was brought on as this, as a researcher, um, mm-hmm. you know, part time, fifteen hours a week, right at the onset of COVID, and. I was like, this is great. Perfect. I, you know, I was starting a garden. I was doing some landscaping in the backyard. I had all this time and, and I was like, and then I can work 15 hours a week. This is wonderful. Mm. I I mean, the major privilege that I was able to experience that I had just recently moved home with my parents. So also mm-hmm. huge privilege of not having to worry about rent. What was going to be the next two years of my life. Right. Um, and so it was kind of like this really serendipitous, just like, okay, this is perfect. Really fits in. I'm figuring out kind of where I want to go next. What, yeah. what are the next steps? Am I moving back to Iceland? Am I even able to move back to Iceland? But I, within that researching phase, they were then, um, you know, I was doing just a lot of writing all the time, which isn't particularly my strong suit. It was great to do more work in that space and just get, you know, get better at it, frankly. But then we were looking at exploring, kind of diving into the grant space because at that time, Ecosiv was more major donor focused. And so looking to branch out into foundations and grant work. Uh So like they asked me if I would be interested in that. And I definitely, I was very much open. So Mm -hmm. that kind of opened that doorway because I had done some grant work, but just for myself as a, as a student, it was yeah. never really organization focused. So that would be about developing a project, putting a mm-hmm. grant application together, finding a donor, submitting it, getting some money and mm-hmm. doing the project. Exactly. And then from there, um, we were able to, you know, secure some more funds. So then I was able to bump up hour wise. I then took on the role of, I mentioned the W12. You sort of funded yourself in many respects there. <laughs> Yeah, that's the way to do it right now. Mm -hmm. Um, I then took on the role of kind of ownership of the W12 Plus Blueprint, which um, is that online platform that I mentioned of kind of sharing urban water security solutions. I have no computer science background whatsoever, Mm -hmm. uh, but I I owned that and and built the platform um, with using Salesforce technology and. So I was spending time learning the ins and outs of what that looked like. How do we create something that is useful and what, what sort of information do we need? I was, mm-hmm. so before that I was writing all the case studies and now I was putting all these case studies 
um, out there to the world and hopefully in a way that are easy to read and um, useful for people mm-hmm. and building the platform behind that. So that was kind of, I was the, pro- I became the project lead for that particular space and um, then continued to kind of work across the organization as I was building out the blueprint in the foundation space, helping looking at other projects, trying to identify, you know, okay, what are the goals of this project? How should we be moving forward? What is it that you're looking to do? Who are we working with? What is it that they want to do? Um, you know, if we're one of Ecosiv's approaches is uh, visioning, backcasting, and road mapping. So within our projects, you know, I was playing the role of, okay, it, at the end of this, what do we, what do we want this project to look like? And then working with all the projects to create steps to get there, that which included funding, partnership development, um, and all of those key pieces. So it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was an overly like natural <laughs> progression of work from research into development, but it was, I kind of recognized my my own skill set of weaving. I mentioned earlier, I have a very lateral, lateral brain. Mm-hmm. So when I hear of this project doing this and you know, water working with this partner who is interested, who's really focused on economic development. And then I'm like, well, shouldn't we connect our well-being economies to our water project and ensure that they're talking to one another and connecting on those partnerships and moving forward? If that's, you know, if it's a better funding opportunity, if it's a better partnership opportunity. Mm -hmm. Um, So I then started Kind of taking the elevator up and getting a bird's eye view of the organization and the pieces that were at play and trying to um, piece them together in a more, I guess, systematic and efficient way to kind of get to achieve our goals was really the biggest thing. So there's a lot of skills going on in all that. Yeah, a lot so of skill de- also yeah. skill development too. Yeah. <laughs> Not all of them natural. <laughs> so you've got like project development which is a skill in itself fundraising which is a really vital skill and uh, the sort of project management as well in sort of, yeah. um and also just in terms of like partnership building and maybe sort of i guess vision strategy yeah sort of building as well you're saying take the elevator up sort of seeing the bigger picture yeah. and understanding how things fit together in that sort of lateral you know brain that you seem to have like um I'd really like to know a bit more about the job you're doing right now. So we've heard yeah. about the path that you've taken yeah. and all the things that have gone on and led you into it. And it sounds yeah. like you've really made the most of opportunities that have been in front of you and, and kept exploring and rising and developing. Yeah. What is your job right now? I mean, how would you describe it to, you know, your grandma or someone who doesn't <laughs> fully understand, you know, what it is you do? Exactly. Um, currently, I ha- I'm basically putting in place processes and strategies for all of Ecosos projects and programs to pursue funding opportunities and the necessary pieces that each project needs to have in place to be able to do that. So mm. working with all project leads to identify funding opportunities mm-hmm. um, to ensure that their project has, you know, has been thought through to the point of where it can receive funding, mm. um, then pursuing those opportunities and following up and reaching out to partners, being being a consultant for all projects as they do their own partnership development as well. Of how do we how do we discuss this with so and so? They seem a little off put. 
and you know what you know what are the skills and <laughs> what sort of conversation style should you be having mm-hmm. so i do that in addition to working directly with our grant consultant who works with our project leads so i kind of manage those relationships yep. um in terms of just refining our grant writing style yep. um and how we how we talk about ecosiv um, and our projects and then i also work directly with the president on um president of ecosiv on you know our strategy externally of you know who should he be talking to um, how should he be talking about ecosiv what are the things that we can be talking about right now in terms of our projects and um you know kind of talk about how how excited we can be about the work we're doing and sharing that with external part external parties so i kind of circle around all projects Mm-hmm. In addition to still maintaining um, working on the blueprint and the water project, so I <laughs> I circle around everything, and then I still oh, kind yeah. of have that as my um, my side that I do on sort of on my own, but with collaboratively with the rest of the water team. Got you. Yeah, I guess one term for what you do is development is often called yeah. development, yeah. isn't it? Which is often like a fundraising mm-hmm. development. Like, how do we yeah. grow? Where mm-hmm. what are the projects we need to fund? How are we going to fund it? But then, I, is your line then drawn that once a project starts and is funding, then someone else is managing that? Yes, you're yeah. the growth engine, really. In yeah. The yeah, and the strategy behind how to get there. <laughs> Got you. Yeah. yeah. And where is the line drawn in terms of how projects are developed? Because I think sometimes fundraisers or you know development managers or whatever you want to call them can be sort of sitting in two two areas. One is that they are in there in the nitty gritty developing and designing the projects with the conservation staff, with the partnerships, the communities, whoever it might be. But ultimately, mm-hmm. they're driving that development, the seed of an idea. What's the problem? What's the solution? Are we going to fit it together? Yeah. Or is it a case of other people do that, the conservation staff, however you define it, they mm-hmm. give you a project that's developed, you sort of sense check it yeah. and then match it to a donor. Which one is it that you do? The latter, um, like. for sure. Yeah. yeah. And we've had most of our projects have kind of come out of partnership prior to my joining. And then the emerging space is mm-hmm. the, so the conservation economies as well as um, agri-food systems are two emerging projects. And it's very much, you know, they are sub, one subject matter experts in, in those arenas, yep. the project leads. And so it's kind of those individuals looking at, you know, what our mission is, how ecosiv works, how, how does our work fit into those spaces, um, their growth of partnership. And then, and then I kind of, I go through and check that and like, does this make sense? Does this work within our mission and vision? Does, does this look like it will be a successful project? And, you know, as you say, since check it and refine it. And what are some of the biggest sort of challenges within a role like yours? What, and I'm not saying it keeps you awake at night, but what are the things that you'd like to share in a podcast? <laughs> yeah. um, it's, you know, it's one of those spaces of, uh, I enjoy the different aspects of the projects, but I also do miss not being just directly involved in a specific project. Um, So not getting all of those details of all the steps of how to move things forward, Mm. particularly in areas of interest for myself. So like in the water space, I definitely, I love that I still have that kind of like little, 
work on the blueprint because I'm staying up to date on new solutions that are coming through and other organizations that are doing really cool work. Mm. Um, so I do miss, I miss that deep dive a little bit. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's kind of, other the, people have the fun in some respects, don't they? In your world. Yeah. 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 And then I'm just sitting here and be like, why is this not organized? Let's, how are we moving <laughs> forward? <laughs> and so, yeah. yeah. And do, do you feel the pressure that fundraising brings? In terms of, I don't know, targets or growth or, you know, it's, it's... personally, no, oh, that's good. <laughs> um, yeah. And I don't, I don't know if that's a personality trait or, or what, but yeah, I don't, I, I haven't felt that pressure. I, there obviously, you know, like most nonprofits, there is very much that pressure for growth, but I, <clears throat> I feel pretty strongly in terms of when our, our project leads capabilities of being able to present projects because this is a space of you know this approach to kind of like in many ways like refined development of partnering with local leaders and then bringing in global resources and knowledge that it's a space when we speak with partners or people potential partners that people are very excited about Mm. and and doing that across particularly you know Basic, basic needs of, you know, water and ag- agri-food systems and, you know, food production and, but also in a sustainable um, conservation focused way and how all the, in conservation economies, even how all those things tie together mm-hmm. in, within ecosystem is really important. So I think how all of our projects leads are able to communicate about their work and how excited they are, it gets people on board. Um, and so I, I feel strongly that Mm. will be successful in that and we've really just kicked into gear our grant um grant seeking probably in the past 10 months or so and we've been i mean we've been successful obviously more success needs to (laughs) needs to occur but um you know there are good prospects so far so good that's great to hear Yeah. Yeah. yeah so if people are listening to this and they're kind of thinking this sounds great this sounds fun (laughs) <laughs> and it's clearly having a good time and working for a great organization. Like what two things. One is like when you look back at your career, what have been the key aspects that have allowed you to, to achieve and have the success that you're currently having in your career? Like what, what have been the key things you had to yeah. rebuild your career? You'd make sure they were in there. Yeah. Um, and off the back of that, what advice would you give other people who are listening to this thinking, I'd really like to follow in your footsteps or have a, mm-hmm. a similar career path? Yeah. Um, it's who I I bundled two questions in one there yeah yeah (laughs) for the for the first one I've always found that persist persistence is key um if you really want to do something it's really important um to really push for it my first job out of my um, undergrad, I I just really wanted to work for this particular company in in Seattle, and I was like, I'm gonna find a way. And I was applying for various jobs, was getting turned down. Mm. <laughs> Continued to apply, had some phone interviews, still got turned down. But because they had gotten to know me, a job in human resources, which I knew nothing about, and then recruiting came up, and they they were like, Would you be interested in doing this? And I said. Yes, I would because I just really want to work here. Um, right. And what was the organization? Um, so that was Vulcan, uh, Vulcan mm-hmm. Inc. It was um, Paul Allen's 
company. Um, they so they had a production company. They had a conservation like philanthropic arm. They were doing a lot of work in or Ebola in um, in Africa at the time. And that's right when I graduated from my undergrad. And that's actually the initial job that I applied for and was very excited about. Mm. And so they spanned a lot of just areas that I was very mm. interested in. They had a production company doing. Um, wildlife documentaries and films about climate change and racing extinction was one of those. And so just like a really dynamic company that I knew had a lot of really smart people that I just wanted to be surrounded by. So you had a target and you stuck at it. You're persistent, you're (laughs) resilient. Yeah. And within that, I think also being adaptable, but like adaptable to a degree, not, not compromising on your values or anything along those lines or, um, you know, but being okay with your trajectory to, you know, your career moving forward, having, you know, having it meander a little bit, having it be like a river in terms of where it's going. And because you're still going to learn so much along the way, um, you know, the skills that I learned in human resources and in the recruiting space have been so valuable for, every job search I've had since then. Um, and just my work across, across departments and organizations, because I worked across this entire organization with different people. Um, and so. Well, I want to, I would love to ask about that. And so yeah. what did you learn through being in HR that's allowed you to be a better job hunter? Yeah. <laughs> I read so many resumes, mm. <laughs> um, so many resumes. I, saw how, you know, hiring managers would interact with particular candidates based on how their approach by, you know, their cover letters, their, their persistence, you know, there's a degree of persistence that can be too much, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, particularly in the job hunting space, but kind of finding that sweet spot and really playing up your strengths in in particularly in interviews, being able to play up your strengths with, by, but also showing how excited you are about learning to grow in a role, particularly like in entry level roles. It's yeah. a little bit different when you're um, a little bit higher up in the, yeah. in the scheme of things. But yeah, reading through people's resumes, seeing how they communicated about themselves, being on the phone with, with individuals that were job hunting um and even me personally being kind of like oh i hope this person doesn't call again <laughs> like they've called a few times we don't have any positions that are relevant or mm-hmm. i've heard that this is not you know the hiring manager isn't wanting to move forward with this individual so it kind of fight yeah finding the sweet spots of really selling your strengths i mean it is really it's like dating in many ways job mm-hmm. hunting mm-hmm. and so kind of seeing that firsthand by the number of candidates that were coming through and just how you're presenting your best self, but showing how excited you are about opportunities to learn and grow within a position were huge um, because there are people that do come in that don't yeah. express that. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and that's, that's a problem for a lot of um, hiring managers and when they see that. <laughs> Uh, quickly, like, what are the biggest mistakes people make in their applications? What did you see, like, the don't do's? Um, on, so, like, on resumes, you know, you can talk about, you know, you might list your job and then just do bullets of 
things you did during that job rather than things you accomplished. You really should be focusing on the things that you accomplished. That's great advice. In that role. Yeah. 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 That's think huge. Of, think about <laughs> the achievements and the results and the outcomes because they sell so much better than I did this. Yeah. As a yeah, result of exactly. that, this happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I even fall into that trap when I redo my resume and I'm like, oh, I need to actually go back and be like, what actually came? I'm saying I did this, but what came of that? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a definitely a big one. I would say actually probably the biggest one because people look at resumes for such a quick, I mean, it's a quick instance. And if something doesn't jump out at them, um, yeah. yeah. And redoing people, cover letters, <laughs> reusing cover letters is okay, but really ensuring that you are catering it to the job that you're applying for and the organization really. Mm-hmm. Um, even speaking more to how you align with the organization. Um, mm-hmm. because it, if it's just the job, you know, there are a lot of jobs that are very similar and people know that you're, you can be reusing those if you're not mentioning anything relevant to the organization's mission or vision or how you feel that you would be contributing to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, guess across, get across in a non-cheesy way, your passion and excitement for what the job is. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. I can be missed in interviews too with nerves, I think too, Mm -hmm. you know, smiling and being happy goes a long way (laughs) and enthusiastic. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Great. Uh, circling back then, what advice would you give someone listening who really wants to work within wildlife conservation? Maybe, you know, uh, two big audiences for us is one would be students or job seekers. So, you know, looking to secure their first job, paying job as a conservationist. We also talk to career switchers, people mid-career looking to switch Mm -hmm. from outside the sector in. Have you got advice for those types of people? Like what's important to understand? Definitely. the. One, there is a job for everything, um, which you, I mean, I'm kind of case in point right now of working remotely in this space that you don't necessarily have to be directly on the ground to be actively contributing to conservation and, um, you know, work that is hopefully supporting the well-being of people on the planet. And the one reason, one of the main reasons I'm actually in this remote space is I after graduating with my um, graduate degree, I wanted to be a field technician and just be out in the environment. But at the time I was um, diagnosed with an autoimmune disease that made it almost impossible for me to walk Mm -hmm. in periods of time. So I felt extremely uncomfortable being out in those environments, Mm -hmm. particularly as a woman. And then this added stress of not knowing if I, you know, could fulfill those requirements of carrying 50 pounds of being out in the field and doing, Mm -hmm. you know, gathering salmon samples and all of that sort of work. So I started looking a little bit more to the space of remote work prior, even prior to COVID Mm -hmm. and found that there is, there is so much going on with nonprofit work with with larger organizations who are now trying to fill their ESGs. There's there is work that can be done that is not directly in the environment that you want to be in or that you desire to be in, but you can still be working to help and support it mm-hmm. is definitely one piece. Mm-hmm. And also being open to opportunities um, in this space. It's, you know, there's a lot of controversy around taking internships and, you know, wildlife conservation, particularly if they're unpaid because mm-hmm. it is, that's, it's uh, very, very easy to get people because experience goes such a long way. Um, and 
in this world. And, but I would be, I would be hesitant to just jump on the first internship bandwagon that you do see if particularly if it is unpaid because your work is important Mm -hmm. and you should be compensated for it. And I think holding, holding that true to yourself and your time and value that you're going to be contributing to this space um, and kind of holding on to that. And there are educational opportunities and internship work that is paid. So, you know, (laughs) finding those and taking the time to find those, you know, there's, we in today's society really try to rush, I think, to get, get the particular job that we want and or need, but every job you have contributes to skills that are going to be applicable somewhere in the future. Mm -hmm. So if you're working at a coffee shop right now, and then you want to be a field technician, it's not something you have to rush into. It's something that you can take, take a little bit of time, um, gather, you know, you're going to have people management skills. You're going to have time management skills, Mm -hmm. all of those things that can be applied later on um, and finding, finding the position that works that works for you in terms of compensation, in terms of safety, in terms of location, whatever it might be, um, in terms of your values that you want to hold on to. Great, great. So be resilient, mm-hmm. be persistent, understand there's lots of different jobs out there and they can be quite flexible and diverse, but yeah. have a plan, but also be flexible. Mm-hmm. Allow your river to meander and, yeah. um, and also uh, take your time, don't rush. Yeah. yeah. There great advice go. great advice yeah. tick 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 <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> Bish, bash, there are many things say. yeah that's, many that's... things that are pressing time-wise as yeah. as we know with working in this space yeah. but our you know our internal clocks that we try to you know speed up all the time it doesn't it doesn't benefit many people when we try to do that including ourselves mm. um and I, I'd really like to sort of round off the discussion by hearing about, you know, what is it, what are some of the best bits of working in, in wildlife conservation or related, like, you know, mm-hmm. paint us a picture of what you enjoy about this career and what others could enjoy too. Um, constantly learning is the, probably the biggest thing. Um, I mean, I, I'm, const- I'm constantly surrounded by people that are smarter than me and I, I love it because I am learning something new every day, mm-hmm. uh, it, every day via Zoom. <laughs> right now Mm -hmm. um but also just the the excitement and the passion of those working in this industry um as a whole is just it's wonderful and you can see individuals that have really found their niche in a particular subject and just love it and live for it i have a friend who researches the invasive uh, European flounder here in Iceland. And I, I mean, I don't have a particular interest in flounder, but I love it when she talks to me about it because <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's life. It's doing, it's all of these impacts on the ecosystems. It's figuring out ways if we're, you know, if we're catching flounder, can we cook it in a way that's tasty? Mm-hmm. All of these things that you can start to think about that you might not have otherwise. So that's definitely one piece. And I think the consistent learning has allowed me, I'll actually be um, starting a PhD in the fall mm-hmm. as kind of brought in being working in the space in EcoCiv as well as just my interests prior to EcoCiv have kind of rounded out my interests in terms of this holistic approach of looking at, you know, environmental solutions to mitigate public health crises as we're seeing with, you know, the 
the growth of what COVID has done, um, particularly in the infectious disease space. And if we see ways that we can do things like habitat restoration and solution-minded approaches to mitigate these risks, they're there, mm-hmm. but, but we've been so siloed for so long. Um, so Ecosiv has kind of brought that picture of like, let's tie everything back together mm. um, and has allowed me to kind of formulate how I'll be moving forward in that space, which is really exciting because, you know, it wasn't necessarily something I thought of before. So yeah, constantly learning from all of those around me and being, being able to feel like you're part of something um, that's bigger than yourself. Um, you know, cause if you're positively impacting the environment, it's not just for you, it's, you know, it's for everything that's living there. Um, and that's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> it certainly is. Yeah. It's great. And it's, it's been really nice talking to you and yeah. hearing about your work and where the organization's going, where you're going, soon to be Dr. Hannah, Anna Hickson. Um, <laughs> Maybe one day, yeah. <laughs> yeah, not too distant. That's really exciting. Uh, thank you so much for your time, for jumping on the podcast. Mm-hmm. If people want to find out a little bit more about you, your work or the organization, um, where mm-hmm. should we send them? Yeah, definitely. I mean, ecosiv.org is our um, our website. And then that's probably the main spot. I'm on, you know, Twitter and that sort of stuff, but I'm not active. So <laughs> I wouldn't... <laughs> I wouldn't recommend those spaces, but <laughs> ecosiv.org for our work. And that shows, connects you to also our particular water work and the blueprint that I have developed. Um, yeah. And definitely there's an email on the, on the website. Feel free to send me an email. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. Anna, thanks again for chatting. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, I hope you enjoyed that, everyone. If you did, then please do hit the subscribe button to get notified of new episodes as they drop. Um, And also, please give us a rating or a review because it really helps us to get in front of more people. Now, if you want our help to get clear and get started and get hired as a professional conservationist, I recommend you enroll in our free online training program, Exploring How to Get a Conservation Job. So if you're a student, a job seeker, or a career switcher, you'll learn the golden rule about how to get started, the key mistakes to avoid, and also we'll answer your biggest questions. You can check that out at conservation careers.com forward slash free. See you soon.